0: Hello and welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Colette Bennett and I'm Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know by now, we have three different types of podcasts. We have our 10-minute lesson series, which is a brief overview of policy topics touching on the areas that we think people should know about. We have our seminar series, where you get the opportunity to take a listen back to some of our best conferences and seminar presentations. And then we have our interview series, where we get to chat to experts on a range of policy areas. And today's episode is one of those. In this conversation, I am chatting with Dr. Cottle McCrory. Cottle is Associate Professor of Psychology of Life Course Development and Ageing in the Department of Medical Gerontology. He also leads the Behavioural and Social Sciences group within TILDA. His research explores the pathways, processes, and mechanisms through which socially mediated risk factors come to influence health over the life course, with a particular emphasis on stress. Today's episode looks at the impact of childhood adversity on life expectancy or age acceleration. It's an absolute eye-opener, so I really hope you enjoy it. So, Cahill, thank you so, so much for agreeing to do this. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing good, thank you. Thank you for the invitation.
0: Good. So you are currently with TILDA. Can you explain for people who do not understand or do not know anything about TILDA and understand how wonderful that work is, what it actually is? So like why it was, was established, where it is, what it does, that kind of thing.
1: OK, so TILDA, the acronym stands for the Irish Longitudinal Study of Aging. And it's one of a, a network of aging studies worldwide that was established to consider um Demographic, social, economic, environmental, and psychosocial influences on the aging process itself. So um, it involves a nationally representative cohort study of 8,500 people here in Ireland, and they're aged 15 years and older. Upon recruitment into the study, now as someone who is now in his mid forties, and I, you can imagine when I arrived until the ten years ago, I was quite surprised to uh, someone tell me that fifty was considered into the older years. But that's that's how we uh, that's how we do it. So what we do is we um, we invite people to participate in the study, and then we follow them longitudinally. So we go back to the same sample of participants every two years, and you can think of it. I guess a cross-sectional study looks at people at a, a point in time. So you could think of that as a, as a photograph. we just see them at one point in time. Whereas a longitudinal study is more like a movie reel. We go back to them every two years and we see how things are developing for them over time. We recruited the sample actually using a thing called the Irish Geo directory. People are always asking me, how did you go about doing this practically? So if you don't mind me giving you a little bit of the detail. Absolutely, but, Um So we, what we did is we... we um, We needed to uh, select a sample for the study and the sample had to be representative of the population of people uh, aged 50 years and older here in Ireland at the time. Unfortunately, no database exists, just listing everybody who's aged 50 years of age and older. So we used the Iris Geo directory, which is a a directory of all private uh, residential postal addresses here in Ireland. And what we did was we selected 640 out of 3000 some odd uh, district electoral divisions And what we said is we selected a random sample of 40 households within each of those district electoral divisions. And we sent an interviewer to the door and the interviewer knocked on the door. When the respondent opened the door, we said, can we just ask? Is anyone here in this household aged 50 years of age and older, and if they told us there were, we asked them would they be willing to participate in TILDA, and also um, could we take their spouse and partner to participate as well, irrespective of whether they were 50 years of age or older or not. If the person consents to be in the study, we. Um, We do a computer-assisted personal interview with them. Uh, They're in the home, it lasts about 90 minutes. And we we ask about things like, many people live in this household. Um, What's the type of job that you do? Are you married or not? What's your income levels? Um, And then we leave a paper and pencil, uh, self-completion questionnaire behind in the home. So that contains information on more sensitive topics. So um, you imagine your relationship with your spouse, for example, or um, uh, your relationship with alcohol. Um, whether you feel lonely or not. And then we also use that opportunity to collect some information about people in terms of their past. So for example, we ask them, you know, what was the circumstances of the household as they grew up? Um, Did they experience childhood physical abuse or sexual abuse? And then finally, I guess in the context of Asian studies worldwide, TILDE is unique in the sense that we ask each participant to come in to us in a health health assessment centre here in Trinity College, Dublin and we give them a really detailed health assessment. So we measure their cardiovascular functioning, we measure how fast they walk, we measure their grip strength, we measure their eyesight, we measure anthropometry, your height, weight, and your BMI, your waist to hip ratio, and so on. Uh, we measure cognition. And finally, we also ask our participants to give us blood. So uh, they, they don't need blood to us and we, uh, we have lipid profiles. And we also do these other types of tests, which I guess we'll talk about a little bit more later in the interview.
0: You literally ask your participants for blood. That's that's what happens when you agree to join the TILDA surveys. <laughs> yeah,
1: and we'd be truthful, anyone who comes to the Health Assessment Centre in, in TILDA, the vast majority of, um, the overwhelming majority of and um, participants uh, would have given us a, a blood sample. So with that blood sample, we, we, we give them some information back. So for example, we, we, we measure their blood pressure on a, um, uh, not a phenomenon, I'm trying to think of the name of it now. Um, but basically we measure their blood pressure, we measure their heart rate, um, so we can tell them whether they're hypertensive or not. Um, we also measure things like their lipid profiles, so their total cholesterol, their LDL cholesterol, the HDL cholesterol, and we give those back to them. And we also give them an indication of their BMI and their step ratio, for example.
0: I presume, and I haven't prepared you for this question, but it just struck me as we we're talking. Um, I presume you must surely have found something that was surprising to anybody. Have you ever found anything that was surprising to anyone when they came in for that, that health assessment? that they may not have known about their health,
1: that was, was new news? Yeah, yeah, so so this is, uh, predates my um, involvement with the study, but um, I think we, we identified a subset of individuals who had atrial fibrillation, which is what essentially is ar- irregular heart rate tracing. So um, even though I guess the principle of these studies is that we don't intervene, um, because this represents an immediate threat to someone, um, we, we actually, uh, followed up with that to ensure those individuals were treated.
0: And again, another assumption on my part. But the the people who are carrying out this health assessment on the part of Tilda are they clinicians? Like they're they're medically trained? Are they?
1: Yeah, so, um, so the, the study is overseen the, um, I guess, the medical part of it by Professor Roseanne Kenny, who you probably know from her recent sure. book, AIDS Proof. Um, uh, Roseanne's kind of synonymous with, with uh, geriatric medicine, uh, both in Trinity College and St. James's. And then there's also Professor Hilary Cronin. Um, so she helped put in place all the, the protocols that we use in the Health Assessment Centre. And also just to say, when, when our participants come in the Health Assessment Centre, we have trained nursing staff here who work with them. So um, so don't worry, it's not someone like me, a researcher trying to take bloods out. I wouldn't be very good at that. Um, but we have trained nursing staff. And over the years, actually, our participants have built up a, a great rapport with the, the nursing staff. So in fact, sometimes when our participants are coming back in subsequent years, they're, they're hoping to see the same face again when they come back.
0: Oh, lovely. Um, and nicely done on the plug of Roseanne's book. I'm sure she'll be delighted there. <laughs> Now, we're here to talk about uh, a study on the impact of of early years experience on ageing. And I suppose we can become siloed in terms of thinking that ageing policies are only for older people. And again, I'm in my 40s um, and I I firmly believe that the new middle age is 60, because I read that somewhere, Um, but, you know, that, that that's the preserve of older people's policies and that younger people's policies are the preserve of younger people's NGOs or younger people kind of, you know, the department for youth and, and that kind of thing. But this really ties in the two. So what was this particular study about? Like, What, what was the driver behind it? Uh,
1: in terms of TILDA being first established, yeah, I guess I guess one of the the, the main reasons behind Tilda being established was what we call the demographic transition. So, for your listeners who may not be familiar with the demographic transition, it essentially re- refers to the phenomenon uh, observed in kind of Western uh, uh, developed economies, whereby by the the um structure of the population has been turned upside down so what I, I want you to imagine a, a triangle i guess for the moment and in this triangle it represents the age structure of ireland historically so what you had was you had a lot of births at the bottom and then you had as you moved up through the age groups you had very few people at the apex you had very few people who lived in the late old age what's happened over the past um few decades i guess is We've seen a decline in the fertility rate. So um, in fact, we've dropped now below the replacement rate. So people are having less than two children um, per average for for people on average amongst people who are um, partnered. And uh, what you're seeing now is because of advancements, advancements in uh, nutrition and sanitation and better water and better medicine is a large proportion of people. Um, living in the late old age. Now, you can imagine this represents um, a challenge for the sustainability of all sorts of systems, societal systems. It represents a challenge for our healthcare system. It represents a challenge for our welfare system. It represents a challenge for our pension system. And for example, some of the work that Tilda has has done is we we ask people as part of the survey about their uh, private or public sector uh, pension provision. And what we find was two-thirds of people have absolutely no idea what um, their pension is going to pay them upon retirement. So therefore, they don't know whether they're going to have sufficient means to live into late old age. You can think about their healthcare system. What's the impact of an increasingly uh, aging population on our healthcare systems and our social care systems that aren't set up to do this? So part of the reason Tilda is here is to inform policy development uh, in the context of that. And what I'll say is we've actually we've actually had impact. Um, for example, th- there's a really nice study. So as I said here, during Tilda, and uh, when participants come into our health assessment center, we ask them to walk along a, a, a mat and we measure how fast they walk on average. Okay. And um, about 30 to 35% of individuals aged 65 years of age and older were walking slower than 1.3 meters per second. Why is that important? Well, the pedestrian lights here in Dublin suggest that someone has to walk 1.3 meters per second to cross the road. So that suggests that 35% of individuals aged 65 years and older cannot cross the road in the amount of time that Dublin City Council allocate to them to cross the road. So till they use this to go to the Dublin City Council, I ask them could they consider increasing the timings on traffic lights to to enable older people to cross the road. And, and one of the things that we argue around this is, this isn't just good for everybody, sorry, for older people, this is good for everybody. Imagine imagine a woman who's crossing the road or a father crossing the road with a, a child in a pram or a trolley, someone carrying shopping bags. Even younger people, you know, um, talking on their phones. You're not necessarily, always necessarily just doing one activity at a time. So the idea is that we could do something around this. We've also identified huge levels of unmet need here in Ireland. We found high levels of health problems, for example, 80% of older people here in Ireland are either overweight or obese. So people keep talking about the, the obesity time bomb was coming down the line. It's here already. <laughs> um, and some of the work that I've done before with growing up in Ireland shows that it's, um, it's already really well established in the younger age, group, age groups. One in 10 uh, older people here in Ireland have diabetes. And we also identified high levels of unmet need. So, as I said, David, when we said earlier, we gave people back um, their blood pressure readings, we found that there was a substantial proportion of people who were hypertensive when they came to our clinic, but they weren't currently being treated for being hypertensive.
0: And do you think, or is there evidence to support a, a demographic element of that? So, you know, is it kind of people in? in- lower-income deciles, perhaps, that have that unmet need more so than the higher ones or that have particular types of medical issues than, than higher-income deciles?
1: Yeah, I think, I think one of the major determinants of it was whether you had a medical card or not, which is a really important determinant of whether someone is, is, uh, gets treated or not, because otherwise there's a cost implication for that.
0: There's been recent reports about a study from TILDA in relation to early childhood adversity um, and, and the impact that that has on ageing. Can you tell me a bit more about that, how that study came about particularly?
1: Yeah, so, so that was the study in which I was, I was the first author on, on that study, um, and I, maybe I can start with giving you a little bit of the context. So as I said earlier, Tilda is a study that starts at 50 years of age and older, okay, but we can be Janus faced about this and we ask people to recall events that occurred during their past. So back in 2015, I published a paper in health psychology that looked at the impact of different sorts of childhood adversity, including like growing up in poverty, experienced childhood physical abuse, childhood sexual abuse, um, parental substance abuse in the family, etc. Uh, the impact of those things on uh, the prevalence of diseases in, in later life. And what we found fairly consistently was that for those participants who reported that they grew up poor, or they experienced childhood physical abuse or childhood sexual abuse. They had higher prevalence of cardiovascular diseases, of lung diseases, of arthritis, of um, emotional nervous or psychiatric disorders, which you, you might expect. And they also had increased risk of comorbidity of disease types. So having one or more, sorry, two or more of those disease types as well. And we hypothesized at the time that these individuals were experiencing accelerated aging OK, that's that's what the, the, the higher prevalence of disease amongst those groups indicated. Now, since that time, there's been a whole burgeoning field looking at markers of biological age acceleration. And when I want to talk about biological age acceleration. If you consider we, we've talked earlier there about our, our respective ages. So you can imagine a situation where you encounter an old school friend in the street. OK, and, and you look at him or her and you say, oh, my God, they're aging really well. They look 30 years of age and you might encounter another individual and they're the same age as you, but they look like they're 10 years older and you wonder about what has happened that's accelerated that person's ageing and decelerated the other person's ageing, OK? So um, so there's there's, a, there's a whole science of, of this, how we go about characterising uh, biological age acceleration. One of the most popular ones at the moment is a thing called the epigenetic clock. And the epigenetic clock is based on levels of DNA methylation at particular sites in your blood. So because our TILDA participants were kind enough to give us their bloods, we were able to to do, we were able to measure um, DNA methylation in in the blood and use it to determine how fast people are aging. So what you do is you essentially use this DNA methylation to develop a DNA methylation age. This is their biological age. This is what we think they are aging biologically. And we essentially subtract it from your calendar age. So that was the day in which you're born. And that gives us a difference. So if the difference is positive, it means you're aging faster than your calendar age. And if the difference is negative, it means you're aging more slowly than your um, calendar age. And what we did then is we looked back at what people had told us about their childhood. And we said, okay, is the experience of poverty in childhood associated with biological age acceleration and physical abuse and sexual abuse and so on? And what we found in the study was that growing up in poverty, so telling us that uh, you grew up poor, uh, was associated with two years of biological age acceleration. So you were two years more accelerated in terms of your aging compared with someone who told us that they grew up pretty well off. If someone's parent had died before the age of 16, uh, so they'd lost one or both parents, that was associated with one year of age acceleration. And if someone had experienced childhood sexual abuse, that was associated with about 0.6 years of age acceleration. So that's what we we shown in the study. And then we went a little bit, a little step further because we're going, okay, we see these patterns in the data, but why is it that someone who grows up in poverty is older much later in life? And we we, we used a thing called mediation analysis, a very simple way is what explains that difference that exists between the groups. And what we find it was that uh, it was differences in um, exposure to third level education and also differences in smoking. So individuals who grew up in poverty uh, were less likely to go on in their education. And also uh, they were more likely to smoke and they're more likely to smoke at a higher intensity. So that that on its own explained one year of the two year difference, just the fact that they smoked.
0: And I mean, you, you've answered the question in terms of that I had in terms of, you know, different types of adversities having a different impact. So you say they're, you know, poverty, two years, death of a parent before age 16, one year, sexual abuse, six months. Um,
1: Sorry, uh, yeah, no, uh, yeah, just more than six months, yeah.
0: Are they compounding, you know, if, if somebody experienced two of three, like say, say for example, poverty and the death of a parent, is that three years or is it, you know, it, it, how does it work? Say, heaven forbid, you, you experienced all three.
1: Yeah, no, it, it, it doesn't compound quite like that. So for example, for, a good example of this would be if you lost uh, one or both parents, that probably increases the probability that you will grow up in poverty. Sure. So, so, it's not, it's, so I guess that these things are dynamic and they can interact. And experiencing one can uh, actually increase the probability that you will experience another. So what we tend to find actually with childhood diversity is it tends to coalesce. So, experiencing one will also increase your probability of experiencing another. But we did actually look at, at what you're talking about here: dose-response relationship in the data, and, and we did find this. So, on average, um, I just can't recall offhand now the, the details of it. But um, yeah, as the number of adversities increased, the, uh, the number of years of which you are accelerated in terms of your biological aging increased as well.
0: And in terms of I suppose when you think of like because you you've joined the two together really well in terms of you know well if you experience the death of one or or both parents you're more likely to experience poverty obviously there's an income loss etc. Is is it the case then that it, you know that that lower age issue uh, relating to, to sexual abuse is it the case that it's about things like nutrition or things like you know being able to to kind of grow up in a, a a home where your basic needs are met does that have a factor i'm just i'm just really surprised by the very very big difference between poverty and sexual abuse
1: so i I, so so one of the the things i should i should acknowledge here colette is that um it we only had data here for 500 individuals um the the epigenetics on which the dna methylation is based is horrendously expensive to do so we actually have bloods for almost 6,000 people um, it, from TILDA, and, but we were only able to do epigenetics for 500. So this is a subsample of the overall TILDA data set. The prevalence of growing up in poverty was about one in four. Um, the, when we look at um, childhood sexual abuse, it was about 7% of the population reported that. So there's probably greater noise coming from that estimate than there was from, from poverty. Another reason why we might not get a particularly strong signal for childhood sexual abuse or childhood physical abuse might be the fact that some individuals... Don't tell us that they've experienced these events. So maybe if you've experienced these sorts of things in the past, you don't want, you don't want to join the study like till you don't are you maybe you've experienced but you don't want to tell us that you've experienced this, okay? In the context of a survey. And the other thing is, I mean, our our indicator indicators of this are crude. So for example, we don't ask people like how often did you experience abuse of any time, how frequent it was, you know, what was its impact on you and so on. We can only ask, you know, very general level questions, you know, in the context of an epidemiological study like this, so that might be part of the reason why we, we see differences across, um, across the types of adversity that you experience.
0: And just taking that into account, I know that you said earlier on when you were talking about the health assessment and the blood draws and that, that they are done by, or certainly overseen by medical professionals. Does the same approach apply when you're asking those kind of questions in terms of childhood adversity and and you know issue instances particularly in terms of sexual abuse? So,
1: so this is part of the reason why we we set up uh, said um the paper and pencil questionnaire the self-completion that we leave and leave behind in the home, because we understand some of these uh, topics are difficult for uh, tilde respondents uh, to, to talk about, so we didn't ask them the questions directly. We left them on a questionnaire, and they completed the questionnaire on their own, and then those questionnaires came back to us here in our offices.
0: If somebody has experienced any of, of these, you know, childhood adversities, does it mean that they definitely will age faster? I know you mentioned kind of the impact of smoking and the impact of of going to third level education. But, you know, are there other things that can be done or there intervention interventions later in life that could be introduced that could reverse this or, you know, at least halt it?
1: Yeah, well, absolutely. Like, I I don't I don't mean these things to be deterministic in that sense. So what it's actually important to emphasize that these results apply their averages across individuals, they're not meant to represent any specific individual within the study. And I actually, previously in the past, when I've um, discussed some of these results at conferences and seminars, I've had people disclose to me things and they would say, for example, I have experienced this thing and they're fearful then that this is what the future heralds for them or that's how they're aging biologically uh, and so on. And, and then I hear great stories about resilience, about how these people have overcome challenges and I'm really interested in exploring that in in, in the context of our study so we actually this will be some of the work that you'll see coming out from us um, down the line and it's important to say here that these things are influenced by a host of other characteristics so when you talk about you know um, is there other things that someone can do there's actually really nice work that I've seen from the UK that's shown that the availability of a trusted other person in your life when you even if you've experienced adversity can buffer you against the negative impacts of that now of course we 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 know that we know that growing up in poverty we know that child maltreatment and neglect are absolutely toxic for the individual okay but that's not to say that it's necessarily your future okay so of course there's things that, that that can happen and other things that can buffer that individual supportive family supportive networks seeking out help for some people, they find it comfortable to disclose information and talk about these sorts of things. So uh, we we are interested in exploring that in, in Tilda, and hopefully you'll you'll hear a little bit more from us down down the line on that. In terms of the second part of your session, the extent to which the early life environment is modifiable, we've done some work on this in the context of socioeconomic position, and so. Uh, what I'm really interested to look is, uh, is looking at the data to see, okay, you have individuals who uh, reported poverty in childhood, but in much later life, we look at them and they're uh, quite advantaged. Okay, So they've went on in education or they're doing very good jobs, very excellent jobs and so on. Um, we look to see what was the impact of social mobility on how people are aging in later life. And actually some of the work that we've done, the messages from this are, are very positive. So um, we, we published a study a few years ago that looked at the impact of uh, social mobility on how fast you walk in later life. And when people go, well, why do you measure how fast I walk or not? Well, we, we actually know that, that how fast you walk is a fairly indi- uh, good indicator of your overall physiological functioning, okay? So it's a measure of cardiopulmonary functioning, it's a measure of your um, lower, lower leg um, muscle strength, uh, you have to, the brains engage in your walking, you have to maintain balance and posture and so on and that's why we use that measure we also know that a uh, slower walking speed actually is associated with increased risk of mortality as well over like a, te- a 10 year follow-up period and what we did then is we asked people about the um, jobs that their fathers or their mothers did during their childhood and then the job that they're doing in later life and we characterize people according to whether they enjoyed high socioeconomic position over the life course so their parents did a professional job and they did a professional job or individuals who for example their parents might have done a, a a a semi-skilled or unskilled job, and they're doing a semi-skilled or unskilled job. And then we looked at individuals who are upwardly and downwardly mobile. And what we find is that uh, for individuals who moved from, um, uh, I guess, an unskilled uh, job in their parents' generation and they're now doing a professional job, they walked as fast as individuals who um, had high socioeconomic position right across the life course. And that suggests that if your circumstances change, that your health will change with it as well. But I should say that for those individuals who grew up, um, who grew up, I guess, with their parents did unskilled jobs and they're doing unskilled jobs in their life, they walked slowest of everyone in the study. And that's just to show that uh, the experience of, deprivation right across the life course can leave a scarring effect on you it has a scarring effect on your physiology and we've shown that across multiple studies in Tilda as well.
0: That is the case even when compared to people who went from kind of very professional parents had very professional jobs and they almost moved backwards in terms of, of social mobility so they're in a lower paid and more precarious job or whatever they weren't I suppose as as impacted as those who had kind of an intergenerational poverty issue.
1: No, exactly. And so that's, that's what we tend to find, is they're intermediate between the, 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 the high group and the low group. Um, and we think that's because they enjoyed high socioeconomic position in their early childhood. And you think about this, it, it kind of makes sense intuitively, because think of the speed with which organ systems are developing in very early life. So, so you'll grow from a single celled organism to uh, 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 an infant measuring 50 centimetres at time of birth and three and a half kilograms. Thereafter, you'll get an explosion in growth up to about 18 years of age and then everything slows down all of a sudden again. So it does make sense to think that, you know, circumstances in early childhood are very important to where ultimately you'll end up in later life.
0: Of course. Um, Now, you mentioned the word resilience and I always get a bit twitchy when I hear the word resilience. Um, And the reason I suppose I get a bit twitchy is because to me, it's, it's it's almost pushing the onus on the individual to deal with their, their trauma, to deal with their adversity. And if, if they don't, they've somehow failed to do that rather than looking kind of at a, a systems approach. But yes, you then talk about, I suppose, the availability of, of a trusted person or supportive networks and, and how important that is. In, in what way are you going to look at that in terms of resilience and how can you kind of align the two?
1: So I, so I guess um, resilience, right? I think it's a misunderstood concept. So people have... The pandemic illustrates this more than anything else, okay? So we've had this view that it doesn't matter what children experience during the pandemic because they'll bounce back. The children are somehow plastic and Mm. that they'll bounce back. I I don't think necessarily resilience as as a characteristic of the person. Uh, Of course, there's some things like hardiness for example might be a component of resilience but resilience has to be built and nurtured and resilience is built and nurtured through the contribution of parents as they raise their children in supportive environments through societal contributions this is not just um uh, uh, what sort of emphasizing the importance of the individual in uh, when we talk about resilience i'm talking about other things as well here around what the system can do to support individuals um as well to uh, if you've been exposed to all sorts of adversity in your past what can we do to help individuals that's what i talk about resilience like it's the ability to bounce back it's not just simply to say that um, it's it's a characteristic of the individual and there's nothing that society can do to assist them with that
0: excellent response thank you for that that has, that <laughs> that does help um, because i think you know a lot of the narrative around it is very much you know you can drag yourselves up by your bootstraps type of thing and if you don't then that's on you whereas at that interplay between what can society do to support you, to build that, to help you along, is really, really important in that, that discussion. So thank you for that. Um, there's a lot of work and there has been a lot of discussion about it in the last couple of years, certainly um, kind of coming out of San Francisco. But it's, it's, it's definitely infiltrating here as well around ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. Are, is, are they aligned to the the type of early life adversity you talk about in in this study, or are they completely separate?
1: No, no, they're, they they would be aligned. I guess um, early life adversity is is uh, I guess the, the nomenclature here differs depending on whether you're in Europe or you're in the US. So a lot of the the research in the US will use the term early life adversity, and whereas a lot of times in Europe they'll refer to it as adverse childhood experiences. Essentially, it's it's the same thing. Now. What I will say about the the questions which we asked in Tilda, they clearly represent only a subset of the series of adversities that a child can be exposed to in early childhood. For example, we didn't ask about uh, parental neglect. We didn't ask about parental divorce or separation. Um, so we didn't ask about things like a verbal abuse, whether they experienced bullying or not. Um, so so there's a whole list of adversities, arguably, that were left out of that, right? I think the in, in terms of the alignment of it, the World Health Organization has now moved towards having an adverse childhood um, experiences international questionnaire. But one of the issues I have with it, or at least the, the, the most recent version I looked at it, it doesn't consider poverty um, as, as an adverse childhood experience. Despite the fact that a lot of the evidence seems to suggest that the experience of poverty may actually structure, um, Michael Marmot refers to it, uh, poverty as the cause of causes may actually structure the probability that you will experience other types of adversity throughout your life. Um, so I, I, I guess that that's that's probably the the, the criticism I'd have of, of that. Um, but I agree, it's growing the the the. ACEs frameworks grown in popularity because people are now starting to realize that the, the these um, exposures to which children uh, might experience in early life can leave legacy effects. They're scarring effects for them, and not even necessarily just in terms of their physiology. So here in Tilda, because we have all these aging phenotypes, we can look at the impact of the experience of adversity and whether you're getting a disease or whether you're aging faster and, or, or your brain functioning, um, for example. But there'll be other people looking at the impacts of this on something like um, entry to the labour market, poor mental health and uh, dropping in and out of the labour market over time and so on. So, for example, we, we know from some of the work we've done in TILDA that individuals who experience physical abuse or sexual abuse in childhood are much more likely to have um, psychopathology in later life and we know the psychopathology is associated with you know um entry into and out of uh, psychiatric institutions is also associated with dropout from the workforce and so on and then what you get is you get a clustering so drop out of the workforce you get unemployment you get you, you you're living in poverty you might have um residential insecurity and so relationship insecurity and so on so all of these risks cluster over time um so I think that's part of the reason why the ACEs framework has become popular. It's it in the sense that we need to understand these kind of um, influences on on children and later adults' development right across their life course.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a really important point to make in terms of where it all interconnects. So, you know, just because you're, you're growing up in poverty, that may not always be the case, but the impact of that may well have a a different effect and might have a knock-on almost like a domino effect on other areas. And we need serious policy coherence to address all of that in the round, which is when I'm going to ask you my last question. Um, In terms of recommendations, so you talked about, you know, the the recommendation to DCC in relation to the the traffic lights. Um, So looking at what you've done here, what kind of recommendations would you make that you think would have a really positive impact?
1: Well, I'm going to make it sound very simple. I know it's not. But tackling the root causes of inequality would would be a good start. So um, I I reviewed a a paper um, a year or two ago um, from the Economic and Social Research Institute. And it showed that at the time, I think it was 2019 or 2020, it said that 16.2%, I think it was 16.2% of children in Ireland um, were living in poverty like I've been involved with growing up in Ireland study and I was speechless. I was almost one in five children in one of the wealthiest countries in Europe is growing up in poverty. Um, And I guess the work that we've done with Tilda and and growing up in Ireland shows that uh, privation, disadvantage, marginalisation and exclusion can leave a long shadow in, in in terms of children's development. And I guess we're going to be serious about developing interventions to improve children's outcomes we we need to move the focus to really early in the life course this is to ensure that um, parents and families are supported in very early in life i would actually love to see free um, early uh, childhood education here in ireland i'm not talking about 3 hours per day of a free preschool provision i'm talking about free childcare okay i'm talking about it to ensure that everybody gets the best possible uh, start uh, gets best possible start in life and um, I guess I'll finish by probably quoting the UN special rapporteur on extreme poverty. He said that supporting children in poverty is not a cost, except in the very strict accounting sense of the word. It represents an investment in our future. And uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, looking at the data, it's 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 hard to disagree with that sentiment. Um, like when I, again, just returned to that ESRI report, it, it considered what would happen with child poverty in Ireland under two scenarios during the pandemic: if there was recovery, and if there wasn't a recovery. Even if there was recovery. Um, the prevalence of poverty was going to increase from 16.7% to 20%. And if there wasn't a recovery, it was going to increase to 20 point, 22.2% or something like this here. Um, so we're getting close then to one in four children in this country uh, living in poverty. So it's very clear that, that we need to do something to address that. People say to me all the time when I say these things, they go, well, where do you find the money to do that? And my response now would be, look what we managed to do during a pandemic when people told us it wasn't possible to do these things. At one stage during this pandemic, if you recall, it looked like we were going to have a universal healthcare system in a foul swoop. We had universal um, social supports for individuals. And why do we have universal social supports at that time? Because all of a sudden, it wasn't just affecting people in poverty, it was affecting the middle classes, as well and it was amazing how quick the government were able to intervene there to to ensure those families were buffered and that was a good thing but sometimes when people said to me now we don't have the money to do this I, I just point at the pandemic response yeah. and say well well maybe we need to think better about how we do that in future.
0: Yeah you're absolutely right and I, I think you're reasoning behind it is probably correct as well in terms of you know we went from you can't raise the the core social welfare rates beyond the kind of five a ago so it went from 203 to 208 whereas the pop the pandemic unemployment payment was 350 quid immediately um and again that recognized what people you know needed that they needed to be raised above the the poverty level um, and just interesting, I, I just looked up the numbers while you were there, the, the poverty rate for children now age zero to 17 as of 2020 was 17.3 percent right. based on the, the EU SILC data, the Survey of Income and Living Conditions. So absolutely. I mean, I think that there's a huge amount there that needs to be done. Thank you so much for all of that. That's been, it's been absolutely fascinating. So where can people read your studies?
1: You can go to our website, tilde. And uh, actually one of the great things on that website is we have uh, some general kind of uh, overview. So if someone doesn't want to read necessarily the academic paper, a lot of the times we will uh, do a press release that accompanies it, which kind of gives you the the distilled form of what's in the final article. But we've got loads of uh, topic reports. On there, for example. So, if you want to look at um, the prevalence of, of um, undiagnosed need here in Ireland, or you want to look at that report on the pension provision here in Ireland, um, or you want to t- read about the traffic lights and so on, you can find them all on our on our, all on our website for free.
0: Perfect. Thank you so so much, Cottle. Thank you. Well now, if you want to check out more of Cottle's work, or indeed any of the work of Tilda, do have a look at tilda.ie. And as always, if you have any comments or suggestions about some future podcasts, please do get in touch with us at secretary at socialjustice.ie or through our web form on the website socialjustice.ie. Thank you for listening.